the Future Proof Podcast from News Talk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, why you should not eat magnets and other objects, a conversation with Mariana Arvanitakis, gastroenterologist, and author Chad Orzel tries to explain to me how clocks work. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. Or you can text us for 30 cent 53106. We get to all of those comments, not here in the program live, but actually in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free in the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. OK, uh, it's time to look back first at the, the week in science. And joining me now by the magic of the Internet is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and double Dr. Laura Dungan. You're both very welcome. Our first story has to do with good news from a new type of cancer treatment, Lara, I suppose, new-ish. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is a a fascinating way of treating cancer where you use the body's own cells, you take them out, and instead of them being targeted against infections, these are a type of cell called T-cell, which is part of the immune system, they re-engineer them and they're called chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. Um, or CAR T-cells, and they re-engineer them to attack cancers, very specific cancers in every specific case. Um, And the the reason this paper is so exciting is because it's just been published in Nature, um, and it's researchers from the University of Pennsylvania, among other universities, and they have looked at two individuals who got these cells put into them 10 years ago. So these people had um, chemotherapy-resistant blood cancers, so leukemias, and 10 years ago, they had their own cells taken out, engineered and put back into them. And these cells at the time rid them of this cancer, which in itself was already wonderful. But 10 years later, not only are these people still clear of the cancer, they actually still have these cells. So these cancer essentially killing cells are still flowing around their bloodstream. Um, and as the researchers say, they don't know whether they removed all the cancer within a few weeks or whether it's like a, they call it like a whack-a-mole where cancer cells pop up and the cells are there to kill them off. But one way or another, these individuals 10 years later remain cancer-free and well. And it's essentially, and not to use it lightly, a cure for cancer in these people. So this type of treatment is good for something like blood cancers, less good for something like tumours. Is that right? Unfortunately, at the moment, that's the case. So a lot of what we call solid tumours, which is tumours, for instance, of of a solid organ, like, you know, the pancreas, the liver, that kind of thing. They are very clever at evading the immune system and they create an environment around them, which is a tumour suppressive environment. It's called a micro environment and it basically sits like a little coating around the solid organ and it's very hard to get through. So at the moment, these cells aren't great at getting through that. Um, but they, you know, they're much better at dealing with blood cancers, which are more diffuse around the body. But there are actually scientists working on cells that will even get through that microenvironment. So, so that is sort of the next stage of it. So a cure for certain types of cancer is, of course, extremely exciting. Just wondering where we are in terms of, you know, rolling that out to every patient that gets blood cancer. So I suppose at the moment, there are clinical trials that are going on and um, still in treating other people. So these people were treated 10 years ago. At the time, this was a very expensive and impractical way to treat people. But the more and more people that are treated with this, the cheaper and cheaper the technology becomes. And um, so, yes, it's not a mainstream technology at the moment. It's not the kind of thing that's used to treat people who walk in off the streets. Chemotherapy is still the way. 
But the more chemotherapeutic resistant cancers that exist, the more these people will need to be treated and the cheaper it will become and the more mainstream it'll become. So, I mean, for for these patients, this is, you know, this is a life-saving operation, right? Because when you talk about these sort of blood cancers, this is life or death. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the likelihood is that both of these individuals would be dead, you know, a long time ago if they hadn't got this treatment. And, and funny you say, you know, operation, it's not even an operation. This is actually as simple as a blood transfusion. So um, I, when I say simple, technologically, it's difficult. Um, but for the patient to take, it's actually, you know, probably easier than surgery would be. So it's a lot less of a physical problem for, for a patient to undergo. Wow. Um, Shane, our second story has to do with trees and uh, an underestimation of how many trees there are in the world in a way. It does. Absolutely. Um, And so uh, recently we spoke about trying to map the ocean floor and doing that on a worldwide basis. And this story is about trying to do something similar for trees. It's doing a worldwide census of all the tree species out there. It's involving 90 countries, but researchers uh, across the world, and it's led by Purdue in Indiana. And they have uh, estimated a remarkable 73,000 species exist in the world, and 9,000 of those are yet to be found, um, which is incredible. So anyone who's a budding ecologist, there are a lot of trees out there for you to go and find. So that's what you could do after school. How, How do they know that? How do they know there's trees that haven't been discovered yet? They use maths, Jonathan, uh, to, to figure that out. They used an algorithm developed by Alan Turing um, during the Second World War at Bletchley Park, um, something called the Good Turing Frequency Estimate. And um, this has been applied to ecology um, and it, it is able to determine the occurrence of rare events, such as finding an unknown tree, um, an unknown species of tree. So they looked at uh, these 90 uh, across 90 countries. They looked at 38 million trees. And so they went out wow. literally into the into the forest to look for these things. And they found 14 percent more tree species than they reckon they should find. And so this was able to get them uh, started with how many kind of undiscovered species are out there. Incredibly, one third of the previously undiscovered species are thought to be um, very rare and thus very vulnerable. Um, And also uh, a whopping 40 percent of them are thought to be in the Amazon basin. Um, Mm. Now, there's a lot to be said about why this is important. But the main thing is uh, for for us selfish humans is is that tree species can be very helpful for us finding new medicines. So it's very rare for us to do molecular medicine, which is, you know, to build up the medicine from scratch. Instead, what we tend to do is go and find things in nature and we make versions of those in our labs that help us. And so there's an awful lot to be said for the biodiversity that's out there for um, not not just for keeping the world going, but from a very selfish reason for keeping us safe and well. So it's in our interest to, to find them, to mind them and to understand them. He's great. He gives a real Captain Planet thing at the end of every story, doesn't he, Laura? He's, he really he, does. He's very good. You should do that. I know. I should, I should try and be as he, good as Shane. He, he, t- he tells a story, but then there's a little moral at the end. I like it. Uh, Lara, our third story uh, has to do with um, LSD as a therapeutic drug. How is she going to turn this one into a moral? I know, I'm trying to think of my moral already. I'm like, God damn the science. Uh, So yes, let's do the story first before the moral. Um, The story is really interesting. Um, I have a few friends who are psychiatrists and um, 
one of them especially really firmly believes that psychedelics are the future when it comes to treating depression. There's been very few um, discoveries in, in terms of treating treatments for mental health in the last 20 or 30 years. And psychedelics, so that's, for instance, LSD um, or psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, um, have been found to be extremely effective in clinical trials. And it can be after just one dosing or, or a very short number of dosings. Um, and they can have great effects for, for months. Um, and it's really interesting and fascinating way. But the problem is that they are hallucinogenic by nature. So obviously, if you have something that is that dangerous to use and people are hallucinating, it, it takes a huge amount of um, clinical care to ensure that these people are well at the time of being treated. Mm. So this new paper, which has just come out from um, a Chinese university and it's been published in Science, what they've done is they've tried to chemically alter um, uh, drugs like LSD to remove the hallucinogenic effect. And they think that they've sort of cracked it in uh, mouse studies. Now, it's very hard to ask a mouse whether or not he feels depressed or whether or not he's, um, I, I don't know, can I say tripping balls, but but tripping balls. <laughs> um, so, so the way they do it is the the human equivalent of depression is when the mouse freezes and the human equivalent of hallucination is when the mouse twitches his head. So, you know, these aren't, this isn't perfect <laughs> by any means, but it's how they've, they've worked in, in mouse studies up until now. And they found that the LSD binds to a certain part of our serotonin receptors um, and they were able to alter it to make it bind to a slightly different part. And they really think that they've taken out the hallucinogenic effects. So obviously the next stage, if, if this continues, is to, to test it in humans and if you can give the antidepressive effects or, or this is also used to treat things like post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. if you can use this without the hallucinogenic effects it completely changes the level of physician care that is required to ensure people aren't you know essentially seeing unicorns and lucy in the sky with diamonds so it could be a, a wonderful change to how we treat psychiatric illness and um, which is believed to affect up to a quarter of the population um you know this could be absolutely groundbreaking if we could find a way to utilize these psychedelics without the side effects uh, absolutely and, and i'm always reminded of this quote from psychiatrist professor brendan kelly from um, ucd and he said you know the the lobotomy of today is how we treat mental health patients um in ireland uh, and uh i uh, i you know that really stuck with me as as an idea like the idea that you can help these people because in his own words, again, you know, there's a lot of kind of guesswork and trying to figure things out. It's not a it's not a very exact science when you're you're dealing in psychiatry. Um, having a tool that 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 can can treat people who are suffering from severe psychosis or severe mental illness that would be amazing. Um, finally, Shane, our last story has to do with dogs. Yes, and I know you two are dog owners, and this is easily my favorite area of science to talk about on the show. Um, this is um, a fantastic work by Jules Howard, um, who's reviewed research on dogs barking. Um, he, and Jules says that this is really important because with all of the new dogs that people have um, to, uh, like a bought or acquired during COVID, um, there's a lot more barking going on and this can really annoy neighbors and owners. And so, yeah, Jules has kind of looked into uh, barking and, and the research around it. I naively thought that all barking was just the dog saying, hey, look at me, attention, please. But in fact, there are degrees of barking. And maybe you guys know this from, from your own dogs. If somebody approaches the house, there can be the low frequency bark, which is basically telling the, the intruder, 
that uh, the dog is big and probably has sharp teeth and you shouldn't come near them. If the dog is with you in the house and has like wants to go for a walk or is excited or is playing with the ball, you're more likely to get a high pitched uh, yelp, which is is just a, a, a friendlier way of, of saying play with me. Can you just do the sounds there, Shane, just so we know what we're <laughs> the, the low frequency one sounds like what you're not paying me enough to do anything like that <laughs> <laughs> so okay, the, fine. the important thing here is um if your dog is barking a lot what do you do the important thing um from the research is yelling at your dog is about as uh useful as yelling at your child when you want them to do something it might be the, the sort of, you know, base reaction that we will all go to, but it's not going to yield an awful lot of success. Similarly, dog collars that give the dog a, a little electric shock. They're not great. They don't really work. They just make the dog what? afraid. Who does that? They just make the dog afraid. So oh, really God. what you do is you train your dog using positive uh, behaviors. You give them treats. You know what? It works really well. Um, I walk a guide dog for my friend every week and this dog is the most he's better trained than I am and he's been trained in this uh, in this way and he's so well behaved so positive behaviors work but but it takes time so Mm. instead of yelling at the dog just slowly but surely um, build up their confidence and 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 you know talk to them listen to them and and give them treats when they behave properly and you will have success and that's the moral of that story jonathan <laughs> i don't know how he does it folks uh, <laughs> very good <laughs> dr shane bergen from uct and dr laura duggan thanks very much uh, all right on the way magnets knives batteries and other things that people eat but really shouldn't Yes, you're listening to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to email us, science at newstalk.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. Now, a warning for listeners that the next item may be a little disturbing for younger listeners. And look, it's Sunday morning. Uh, it contains some graphic medical detail. So if that's not what you want to listen to right now, you might want to skip the next 15 minutes. So, so that said, I think if you choose to specialise in gastroenterology. You're not someone who is easily phased. After all, you are dealing with the digestive system in all its glory. And for most of us, digestion is pretty straightforward. We eat food for pleasure and sustenance. There are some instances, though, where this is not the case, and they can pose a real challenge for the clinician in question. Marianne Arvanitakis is from United European Gastroenterology, and she's Associate Clinical Professor at Erasmus University Hospital, Brussels. She joins me now to discuss. Uh, you're very welcome to the programme, Marianne. Remind me exactly what a gastroenterologist does. Well, hello, Jonathan. Good to be uh with you this morning? Well, we do quite a lot of things, actually. Uh, we do explore the, the digestive tract from the stomach to the small bowel to the uh, colon, uh, but we also take care of the liver, of the pancreas. Uh, so it's quite uh, multidisciplinary, actually. And um, it, it kind of goes from one end of the tube to the other, right? Mouth to the, to the other end. Uh, yeah. And that kind of <laughs> falls somewhere under your, um, your remit. Uh, yes. We have tubes to look in the stomach and the colon and also in between. So when we eat, most of us do this for pleasure. But of course, if we don't eat in the right way, we can have complications. And and I had a discussion with you uh, at the UEG conference, and I thought this is something that's really both interesting and almost a, a public health message as well. So when we don't eat properly, can you give us an example of the sort of things that, that can happen? There was a, a case that it, you mentioned. 
Yes, so uh, people might eat quickly, they may not chew their food properly, and you might have what we call food impaction. So this can happen with uh, pieces of meat that are not chewed properly, or even uh, small bones and even small bones of fish. And uh, it's, it's related really to, to eating quickly and not chewing properly, but it's, it can be have complications, which means that you have to go to the hospital because you have the blockage and you have to have an upper GI endoscopy where we go with the tube and, and, and extract the morsel. But sometimes it can be quite dramatic. We had a recent case where the, uh, the, the individual, he stayed uh, with this, uh, the impacted morsel for more than three, four days and he, and he had finally an erosion, a, a hole in the esophagus. And no, so this is very dramatic complication, long hospitalization. So it can be even more than, than just a visit to the hospital. So if we can pass a message is really take your time, slow food, chew properly, really get 10 good mastications before swallowing. Uh, you even get all the, the, the pleasure of, of, the, of the taste as well and avoid these kinds of horrible stories. Yeah, there's lots of good reasons why we should <laughs> chew our food properly, but I'm really surprised that this, this doesn't happen more often. Why does our esophagus not get blocked up um, more often? In, in this particular case, as you say, this guy had food stuck in his throat for three to four days. I mean, it must have been alarming for him. Um, it, it, how do you deal with something like that? And, and is it not as simple as just sticking down a, a, a hook with a, on a wire and pulling something out? How do you get rid of something like that? But first of all, we have to uh, take care of the patient. He has to be uh, completely uh, uh, sedated with general anesthesia because it's very, uh, there's a big discomfort uh, during these procedures. And we go down with a special uh, camera, which we call an endoscope. Uh, and we have devices uh, really to try to uh, uh, catch the, this, this piece of food, which is sometimes impacted. So we have devices first to fragment it and then uh, kind of little nets uh, to, to, to uh, retrieve it. But it can take sometimes uh, more than half an hour, 45 minutes to, to, to get it out because it's really stuck uh, in, the, in the tube. But, but why doesn't this happen more often? Because our esophagus isn't that wide. Um, why, why, do, why is it possible to eat often a huge amount of food and it not get stuck? Well, it, it depends really on the motility of the esophagus and on the diameter. And it's, it's a tube that has some kind of proposal, some motricity. So it helps bring things down, which is good. Uh, but in some people, this, uh, this won't work properly. So these people also are a bit of risk. We talk about allergies and some people with allergies have what we call uh, a kind of allergic esophagitis. So it's an, an allergic inflammation of the esophagus. The official name is eosinophilic esophagitis, and they're uh, more at risk to have these blockages. And, but the most usual case is uh, uh, an elderly uh, person that will take a big uh, bite uh, and not chew properly, uh, and, and, and he can swallow it, but it will might get uh, stuck somewhere. Also, if you have a stricture, you know, something where the diameter is, 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 is uh, tighter there because there is a tumor, that's also a risk factor. Where fortunately it doesn't happen so often. Do you guys have a, a guide as to what you worry about and what you don't? I mean, we think about all the things that children accidentally ingest. Um, 
is there a, a sort of a size guide as to when you worry and when you don't? And what, what is that exactly? Because I, I know lots of hospitals have people with crayons up their nose, but gastroenterologists <laughs> must see um, must see kids and, and adults with lots of things that they've accidentally digested. What's safe? Yeah, that's that's another that's another nightmare. Uh, kids eating things. So uh, we usually this is different because kids will eat something that's not so big. I mean, they, they it has has to be easy to swallow and, and fun because that's why kids do these kind of things. Uh, but usually we get alarmed when it's something pointed, uh, like a needle or a kind of pointed metallic uh, object. Magnets are, are a huge problem because you have these really very strong earth magnets that are in toys. And if you fall, if you swallow one magnet, it's okay. But the kid swallows two magnets or more magnets. These can kind of like get together between the different uh, parts of the gut and make holes in the small bowel in the gut. Wow. So this is real emergency. Uh, there's so been, so they, they swallow two magnets and the, yes, the two magnets, one passes, together. the other one they stick together and they sort of yes. try and attract you to the squeeze the tissue until they make yes, a hole. And yes, th- those yes. holes then presumably that is... That's really dangerous because you're talking that's, about a big yeah, that's size. A, that's an emergency. That's an emergency. And then we have uh, the batteries, uh, the batteries, the, the button batteries, uh, uh, which seem so attractive to swallow for small kids. Uh, if they get stuck into the esophagus, I mean, the esophagus is uh, uh, two walls, which are, uh, you know, with their, their water. It's a water environment and they can make like a circuit. And you can really have... Uh, uh, these uh, burns in the esophagus if a, if a button battery stays there uh, for more than uh, 10, 15 minutes. So this is also an emergency. Okay, so I didn't realize that if you are a parent and your young children are playing, batteries are, are a danger if they swallow, uh, particularly these button batteries that you yes. find, I suppose, in smaller devices, but also um, also these magnets. And, and um, when, the, when this happens, what sort of a surge? I mean, how do you go about finding something like that and how do you go about extracting it? Well, we, first of all, we, we ask uh, all the important questions to the parents. Uh, we tried really to understand what happened, what, when was it, when was the piece ingested? Um, for example, we had recently uh, uh, parents that bought in a kid, um, a small kid that was uh, four or five years old, uh, uh, dragging the older brother behind because what happened is the, it was this was at 11 o'clock at night. Uh, the, the younger one was sleeping and the older one found it was a great idea to put a button down his, down his mouth. And so the, <laughs> the younger brother swallowed it accidentally. So there we had the full story. I think the older brother got really whacked, but this is the stories that we have. So you really have to get the story. And then we do an x-ray, mostly really to see, uh, you can see uh, lots of things in the x-ray, but not everything. And coming back to the previous story with the food effects, we really don't see these unless there's a big bone inside. And then with the X-ray, we, we, we go in again with the same kind of device, the camera with uh, the endoscope, as we say, uh, this flexible camera. And again, the, the, the child has to undergo general anesthesia. And uh, we use, we have some nifty devices to catch if it's a button, if it's a coin, if it's a battery. It's like fishing. Yeah, it, you have kind of these long wires and then you can yeah. kind of push a claw in and sort of attack whatever, yes, whatever yes, it is and try yes. and grab it. Um, uh, and th- does that sort of technology change over time? Does it get um, uh, much better at it or is it still sort of a, a game of, of fishing? It's still a game of fishing, but 
we had, I think the latest, the last 10 years, the most incredible invention was the a special little net we have, which is also a de these devices, we can all put them through this, uh, through these the scopes, these endoscopes, they have a little channel where you can put your devices inside. But this little net is really useful to catch things. Uh, you kind of put them in a little uh, uh, pouch and you bring them out. So this is probably the biggest invention of the latest 10 years. But since, since 10 years, I mean, not, we're still using fishing techniques. I suppose the danger, of course, is cutting. You need to be very careful not to tear the tissue yes, when you're trying yes, to get this to, yes. sort of stuff. We have to have a good control of the of, uh, of the wall of the esophagus. And uh, usually these stories end well. The kids go out the next morning. And... Oh, that's good to hear. So yeah, yeah. Um, what's the most unusual thing you've seen in someone's stomach? Um, I know that lots of gastroenterologists have a sort of a, a wall display, don't they, <laughs> of the things they've pulled out of people. What's the most unusual thing that you've had to remove? Well, the most unusual and the most uh, difficult ones are the, unfortunately, the, the, the patients that have psychiatric problems and they, uh, they swallow large objects because it's, it's, it's done in a, in a really in a, in, a, in a sad psychiatric setting. And so they will, uh, they will um, swallow uh, lighters and they will swallow knives and uh, they will swallow uh, all sorts of things that are most difficult to extract because also they're larger size and you have to take them out of the esophagus as they came in. So this is probably uh, uh, the most uh, difficult ones because also they're recurrent. These patients, unfortunately, even if they're hospitalized under surveillance, they will manage to, uh, to still uh, find uh, something and swallow it. So this is probably uh, uh, the, worst, the worst case scenario. Yeah, there was a, a case of a, a recurrent eater who would would eat knives, as you say, and yes. and, and razor blades, uh, which of course is hugely traumatic for for, for loved ones, uh, but also presumably for that patient. What do you do in that situation? How, how do you help someone who continues to to swallow things that are bad for them? Well, we need uh, really. This is a, a, a psychiatric management. We are there to uh, to put the patient out of danger by extracting these objects so but uh, it's mostly uh, psychiatrists that really have to take care of these patients and they have to be in special settings either in hospital or in special centers uh, and uh, unfortunately we're we're not in, in we're sometimes in a difficult position because we don't have solutions uh, but we're there to help and usually we're just you know we're helping the psychiatrists deal with their patients in this particular case, I was really surprised that the the body could could survive the sort of onslaught. So, in the, can you give us some details to the amount of of um, of things that this woman was ingesting, um, and and why why that didn't kill her? Well, it was it was possible that she came back three uh, times in a week with uh, two or three or four knives. I suppose that she could still survive because she was taken care of every time she had uh, these this episodes. And um, the, the minute that you can ingest something that goes down in your esophagus, most of the time you manage to take it out. If you take special precautions and she, was, uh, she had the, the chance, uh, of, at least for this, to be followed up in a specialized center, in a good endoscopy center. This is how it usually happens, but sometimes we cannot take out... Uh, uh, the device, or it has gone further down the, the intestine. In this case, uh, a razor blade is small and can pass uh, uh, after the stomach in the small intestine. And in that case, sometimes it can really hurt and, and uh, have more devastating complications. 
So right. here she was, she was lucky. She was lucky she was taken care of uh, immediately. Yeah, so in, in, in cases like this where something has been, so the earlier you get to that patient, the better. And I mean, I suppose from all of these cases of, of kids swallowing batteries and, and magnets, from the, the food impaction uh, from, to swallowing knives three times a week, I was really struck by how, the ability of our body to recover. I mean, our esophagus and our digestive tract has, has an amazing ability to, to deal with foreign objects and to, to recover if, if these things are acted upon quickly. Yes, we have uh, the healing uh, is, is amazing. It's true. Uh, when, uh, when we see sometimes the lesions that these uh, objects have provoked in the esophagus, and then we say, we'll check out to be sure that everything is nicely healed. Uh, in two or three days in a patient with good, good you know, overall health, they will heal very quickly. So this is very reassuring. So Mariana, um, just a final bit of advice, mm -hmm. for, you know, I suppose mostly for parents, but for anyone listening, when something is swallowed, at what stage do you say this is a hospital thing? And at what stage do you say, let's just wait 24 hours and see if it comes out in the toilet? <laughs> uh, just to be sure, I would say it's always a hospital thing. If they're really sure that uh, something has been swallowed, it's better to uh, at least inform the GP and see what the GP says. Uh, I know that in the UK uh, uh, or in Ireland, maybe things are different uh, because the GP there has a very crucial role. Uh, here in, 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 my, in Belgium, where people can come quickly to the hospital. I think that medical advice is crucial in this case. And then the GP will uh, orient the patient uh, to go to the hospital or not. But I think, first of all, it's medical advice. Uh, and if there is no GP, then come to the hospital. The, the parents better bring the kid to the hospital with all the history, with all, if there's pictures, if we can really identify the object, that's, that's, that's very important. For the impaction as well, if there are signs that the, the, the person that is really blocked cannot swallow and has salivation, meaning that the, there's a full, uh, complete esophageal impaction, this is an emergency. Just on that, what, what, what can happen if that person doesn't, I mean, doesn't, wouldn't the food just dissolve eventually or what can happen if that person is well, what, if, if there's food stuck in the esophagus? If there's still food stuck with a complete obstruction, you cannot swallow your saliva and you might be, you might choke. Right. And uh, in the case of, of this, the story this, that we had, it might really perforate, make a hole in the esophagus because okay. of the pressure and everything. So it's, uh, it's definitely an emergency. Chew well and eat your food um, properly. Our, uh, Mariana Arvanitakis from uh, Erasmus University Hospital in Brussels. Thanks for your time. Interesting one, that. Um, we'd love to get your comments on it. You can email us, science at newstalk.com. Speaking of comments, it's time to look back at some of your comments from last week's episode. Um, and we spoke to Dr. Claire McCoy from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland about this amazing uh, MS paper that I have been shouting and tweeting about for quite some time that seems to show a path to a vaccine for multiple sclerosis. It's a, a disease that affected my neighbour when I was a kid and it was awful to see such a healthy, vibrant woman end up in a wheelchair and eventually die from multiple sclerosis. It was uh, a feature of, of uh, my calendar year in school every year, the MS Readathon. And just as a disease, it's such a debilitating, unpredictable and tragic disease because it, it affects um, people often very young from age 20 to 40 is when they first get diagnosed for the most part um, and can be a very serious degenerative neurological disease. 
it is theoretically possible that we may have a vaccine in our hands for the virus that goes on to be one of the primary factors for MS um, in our hands in the next uh, year or so. And that could mean a vaccine for MS forever, um, which is extremely exciting. To clarify, because some people were asking me about it on on Twitter, this virus, Epstein-Barr, does not give you MS. Lots of people have Epstein-Barr, but nobody, or at least it seems that very few, very, very few people can go on to get MS if they haven't got Epstein-Barr, which means if you vaccinate for Epstein-Barr, which is possible, you get rid of MS. And that's uh, why it's so exciting. Uh, Claire told that story as an MS researcher uh, extremely clearly and uh, a great emotion last week. Huge response on Twitter and on email. Just a genuine joy for people to hear really good news from the world of science. Pork McAdister um, says, great show this morning with Claire McCoy. Uh, Eddie Carr says, such an uplifting segment. Lots of people saying they really enjoy the piece, but Will this affect people who have MS now? I think Claire was saying that it is possible that new science comes out of this, that understanding that Epstein-Barr is key leads us to think about B-cells and why certain treatments work. And it's all part of the puzzle at the moment. This doesn't translate directly into a therapy for those who have been diagnosed with MS. Another says, my daughter has MS for 30 years. Is this vaccine any use to her? Again, um, those those sort of comments um, we addressed um, in, in emails where we had been emailed. But at present, no. But that doesn't mean to say that this knowledge won't lead to, to new medicines. And uh, someone else says, I have MS and have repeatedly tested negative for EBV. Um, that is, of course statistically possible and and probably unsurprising that there are some people who develop um, MS as a result of something else going wrong that may not show up for EBV. There may be a reason why that virus is not showing up. But this data is really conclusive that if you have EBV, um, the chances of you getting MS are very, very low. So in in that particular case, it's not zero. And um, the data seems to say that's a very, very unlikely thing to happen, but it can happen. So thanks very much for your text. I, I suppose, you know, all of these, all of this data and all of these um, cases will be scrutinized to try and figure out what what is that mechanism and, and how do genes play a factor and how is it possible to, to still go on to have MS and, and, and have a EBV. But um, thank you so much for all of your comments on that. That's it from us for this week's programme. Thanks to Simon Keane, who is producing this week, Aidan McKelvey, uh, JJ Clark, Steve Daunt and Jojo Cardozo, who's on sound, will be back with more Future Proofing Your Podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Music.